Dignity Justified, Episode 6. Dignity Justified illuminates African-American images, ideas, and individuals. Hi, I am Anita. And I'm Calvin. In this episode, we interview Reverend Willard W. Bass, Jr., Executive Director of the Freedom Tree at the Institute for Dismantling Racism, who discusses a wide range of topics, including dismantling racism, food deserts in Forsyth County, as well as other engaging work that encourages collaborative community work where most anyone can join the organization's mission to support diverse and inclusive cultures. Let's get started. Hello, Reverend Bass, and welcome to the podcast, Dignity Justified. How are you? I am fine, uh, Anita. It's uh, good to be on the podcast with you all. Hello, Reverend Bass. It's great to uh, have this opportunity to interact with you again and to hear about some of the great work you're doing, you and your team down at the Institute for Dismantling Racism. Right. So uh, we have uh, done some uh, retooling ourselves. So we now call ourselves the Freedom Tree at IDR. Okay. Freedom Tree. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Okay. Reverend Bass, in general, when trying to understand or explain the impact of of racism, there are many activists and community organizers who recall maybe specific events in history when the issue of racism moved from general discussion to perhaps a mission, and some refer to it as a call to action, either for self or, or for country. So depending upon age, some trace the initial reflection to the 1955 hate crime when 14-year-old Emmett Till was murdered in Money, Mississippi. And for others, it may have been the economic issues of the 1960s, specifically Memphis sanitation strike workers and subsequent protests, particularly throughout the South for civil rights. And today, discussions generally center around the theme of Black Lives Matter and police brutality, noting George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. Reverend Baz, can you recall a local or national event that caused great reflection in your life and may have directly or perhaps indirectly led to the work that you currently do today? Uh, That's a deep question um, because there's several intersects that I guess you could say affirm the work that I'm doing and the journey that I've been on. But however, uh, maybe it's maybe it's my family and my upbringing, you know, that actually started me on this journey. My father, our family was 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 a traditional African American family, but my father was lighter. Uh, he's he's Native American and and African. My mother is African and probably, you know, some version of uh, of Native American. Um, and so, so I have always been aware that there's a, there's something about America that's different. Uh, I grew up in segregated times, right? And so I, I uh, got to experience what it meant to um, go to a theater and have to sit up in a balcony, and then at the same time to do the, to go to the, to a similar theater in the in the military and be able to go down front and experience it in a very um, free, liberated way. So, so the journey for me has been a very long journey. And I've always been on the quest. And that was one reason why uh, I guess I was so um, driven to establish the Institute of Discipline and Racism when I did. Um, but but now, I mean, you mentioned several, you know, intersects of, you know, different versions of how the work is being perceived and done. But I would have to say mine is with the uh, uh, 
with the uh, the, the sixteen nineteen project. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would resonate with that very much, and it's not because Nicole Hannah Jones is my niece on my wife's side of family, but just because the story that she's telling is a story that I've known, you know, bits and pieces about. She's just done such a good job of putting all the things together, and so I'm in agreement with her that a nation, uh, uh, the nation of, of America, United States, did not start with uh, the uh, 1776 freedom, what do you call it? We call it, you know, we just celebrated, if you will, Independence Day. But it actually started when uh, Africans were stolen from uh, their motherland and brought to America and started working here. I say working, uh, slaving here in 1619. We can talk a little bit more about that as we go. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So you have some Native American background, you have some African-American background, and you are old enough to recall how things were different from today's 2020-21 environment. But let's talk a little bit about the organization, uh, Reverend Bass. So the Freedom Tree at the Institute for Dismantling Racism, which I'm going to use the acronym IDR, has as its mission to promote community transformation through institutional engagement designed to eliminate structural inequality and cultivate, foster, and nurture an equitable and just society. Now, since the inception of the organization, of course, you are the founder uh, back in 2004. How have the challenges to fulfill that mission changed or become more challenging. The one thing that we we've noticed, I um, I've been doing this work now for over eighteen years, and our initial mission action was to provide spaces where people could come in and and be educated, if you will, right? Uh, be made aware of the history of our nation, you know, and that from the beginning, our nation has always been one that was designed to uh, perpetuate the desires and and the goals of white folk. But what I found, though, after doing that for about 14 years, seven years training and established what we call teams, and the teams were designed to go back into institutions using the tools that they learned in order to, you know, you know, ch- you know change policies and practices, you know what I mean, behavior, that sort of thing. But what we found, though, after uh, the teams had been in business, so to speak, for seven years, which took us to 214, we found that that all the teams, and, and there were seven teams back then, all the teams except for two, the team at Green Street Church and the IDR team were the only two that were actually functioning. And so that gave us a chance to reflect on what was going on with that. And what I came to the conclusion was that training alone was not going to resolve it, that even if you train groups of people to do things, to go back in the institution, that wasn't enough. And so we began then to look at Within the organization, as a matter of fact, we put in a grant to continue the work at the time and the local foundation turned us down mm-hmm. because they said they thought that we had gotten all what they called the low hanging fruit. In other words, people who were interested and wanted to do this kind of training and involvement. But they said what they would do, they would approve, if you will, or provide funds for us to do a, f- a feasibility study. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we decided then that we would do the feasibility study. And it was from the feasibility study then that we were actually able to then retool the organization and move it from IDR to the Freedom Tree at IDR. And I can talk more about that. And I would add to that, Reverend Bass, that the organization who you mentioned you initially applied to funding for, they had the vision and apparent commitment to what then IDR was doing 
so that it wasn't just a case of, no, you won't get the grant. Goodbye. Have a good day. But it was more, you know, we can't go down this path with you, but let's see if we can go down this other path to hopefully keep going in a new environment, in a new way, uh, what you have started. So they saw some value, obviously, in what you were doing. But that was the proverbial fork in the road where uh, the feasibility study offered you and your team an opportunity to retool and rethink and revise. So uh, that that that's a good part of the story. Right. So exactly. I mean, just for uh, I mean, at that point, I thought about it myself. But, we, you know, in the board, we reflected on it. We said, well, maybe it is time for us to do some internal looking, you know. But the feasibility study was also designed to help us to get some input from the community as well. So those two combination of those two things. And also some um, involvement with the uh, uh, with the local university, which is in the state marketing department, uh, communications department, helped us, you know, to redesign our website, helped us, you know, to coin, you know, new words, if you will, you know, uh, a new um, logo, and uh, and it's with those things that we decided that we were not just going to do trainings; that we want to do transformation work. So it was from that point on that anytime I talked about the work, I didn't talk about a training; I talked about this idea of transformation. And for me, transformation means the individual first needs to make the commitment to be willing to change the, their behavior, to change their way that they uh, understand and, and do culture. And so from 2014 to 17, we uh, retooled our trainings. And then in 17, we also decided that we wanted to uh, be a model. We said, well, if there's no institution who's been through the training uh, that's actually doing other than the two that I mentioned, then let's do it ourselves. That is um, the Freedom Tree uh, would then embark on this mission, if you will, to live out, uh, you know, and exemplify what these what these two are, are meant to do. And so we then uh, looked around the community and we're looking at what kind of things could we do? What was what was available for us to do that would help address, if you will, an issue, but at the same time um, to implement the, the tools that we had learned through the training. And what we found out, it was uh, it was food. Uh, the city had been doing some studies and research, and they had come up with this number that there was a, a 11 food deserts in Winston-Salem. Of course, most of them are in East Winston, uh, on that part of town. And that, so we started looking at those food deserts and decided that we were going to then um, find a place that we could actually address food. And so that's when we changed and uh, toward, if you would, address an issue, but at the same time trying to live out these ideas of what it means to, what it means to be anti-racist. Okay. So moving from, well, including actually training as well as a collaboration and collaborative formats. Uh, when we think about some of your, your values with spiritual grounding, justice, personal growth, and history, uh, in addition to the food bank and the food deserts, can you help us to understand how does that translate in addition to the food desert research and work that you're doing? How does that translate into other community programming and services that are provided? Well, um, I'll tell you for us, what, what I what I had come to believe is that um, most of the work that's being done around diversity, inclusivity, and, and dismantling racism was programmatic in that they 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 train people, engage people to go back in the institution and to work with what they have, and that and to me that was not uh, working, and it's still not working as as I believe it. Because heard it's 2021, I've been doing this work for 18 years, and we still have you know a very significant uh, problem, if you will, with racism and the disparities. Of course, continue to grow, 
you know, if you can look at the numbers, if you go back and look at the numbers 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, the disparity numbers have not changed basically other than getting worse. They have not gotten better. And the reason why they haven't gotten better is because of the way we have looked at racism and, and solutions for racism. And to me, it's about inviting you know people in, white people, you know, to understand that we all perpetuate racism in our own way, but that it is designed to perpetuate a way of life for one group of people. And until we change that, until we have models that can help uh, facilitate that, then it's never going to change. And that's why we decided that we were going to then uh, establish the uh, the uh, share cooperative at Winston Salem to address the food issue and to uh, do it in a model that was inclusive, which is a co-op model. And then also to be able to have, to establish some new values. So we have we have some values that we use. I'd be interested. I can get them. I don't have them with me right now, um, but I can uh, you know get those values that we use. And, and, they, and they talk about things like you know everybody's a human being. Uh, we're all you know on our own life journey, and we're, and we you know wherever we are is where we are. We take people from there you know where they are and bring them along. You know, and that the United States has provided resources for everyone through government programs. And we think that's a good thing. So it's been those kind of things. Spirit, we all have an inner way of being, and that we we must change our inner way of being before we can actually uh, go forward with you know, with any type of transformational change. So we established those things, and then we uh, decided to uh, plant ourselves in the food desert, which we've done, mm-hmm. and we've done that in a way that the food desert is not uh, in a place where the disparities are not overwhelming. But this particular food desert location is one that is projected by the city. Uh, to grow and flourish in the future. And we thought that was a good place to plan our first uh, location. Okay, that's making me think uh, just how various people from all walks of life are making an effort, just as you're saying, to bring about change in America. And some begin by seeking a greater understanding of systematic, uh, systemic racism. And so they often turn to literature to help them to understand the criminal justice system, civil rights movements, Jim Crow right. and other topics. Right. And and a lot of people are looking to to literature and books, uh, going back right. to even James Baldwin in the 1963 book, <laughs> A Fire Next Time, as you recall, talks about racial inequality and right. other books like Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. That's right. by Stevenson. And he discusses the criminal justice system. Yep. And one of my favorites, Stacey Abrams, who shares her experience in leadership and politics, lead from the outside. And of course, Isabel Wilkerson, who through the caste system, thinking about America, she links the caste system in America to caste systems in India and Germany. So it sounds as though what you are also trying to do is to assist people in understanding the core of racism and how it has become so pervasive. And that allows people to be avenues of support and allies in your cause for dismantling racism. Right. The, the only thing that I would say with that, and there, even now when we do our trainings uh, and our engagements, we tell people we're not the experts because technology now is such at a, a high, highest level that even you know the individuals with telephones can you know say you know serious what is this or Google whatever you know what I mean, and they can get the information that they need if they want a book, they can do that, and serious would recommend a book. So, so that's so the idea of r- racism not being uh, uh, readily available. I'll put it that way, or accessible rather. That it is very accessible. But the thing about it, the thing that I want to make clear though, is that is that racism hasn't gotten more pervasive just because you know some people act in a certain way right now. I mean, it's always been there. 
you know, we we've lived three or four hundred years of this racism. And that's why it is now the word is. And then our president, or at least our former president, if you will, 45, he was the one that actually brought it out. He brought it from a covert to an overt way of being. It was always there. You know, people had to learn how to talk, you know, a certain way, act a certain way, do a certain way, think a certain way and and not be, if you will, exposed. You know what I mean? Or put out. But it's always been here. And I, I, I want people to understand that this is something that it didn't pop up and people didn't start making this stuff up now. What they've done, they've refined it to the place where they're not experts at it. That's my language, if you will. Mm-hmm. Those who perpetuate it intensely, you know, uh, they, they just know how to do it in such a way. You know, that is uh, that it's like a way of life, you know, and that's basically what it is. It's a way of life for folks. And until we understand the impact that it's had on us, you know, at all people as all people and and that, the, you know, the detrimental effect that it's having on us as a nation, you know, we're not going to change anything until we get to there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yes, it's, it's America's struggle today as well as throughout our history. So right, exactly. uh, definitely, definitely agree with that. Right. right. And there's an. There's another book, too, I want to recommend. My network uh, sent me some. They, we're always communicating back and forth on links and on uh, articles and things that come up. And so this book here by Heather McGee. I don't know if you've heard of Heather McGee. She's a um, researcher. She might be a historian. But her book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone, How and How Can We Prosper Together. A very good book. She talks about the pool being drained concept. You know, the idea that you've heard the stories about. When black kids started coming to, to the public pools, instead of them, you know, make, making them accessible to everybody, they drained the pools. And her thing is that by them doing that, they hurt everybody. It wasn't just black folks that got hurt by the drain pool, but it was also white folks. And that whole mentality around, you know, draining, destroying stuff or not having it is is that, you know, very dangerous place to where we, she believes is where we are today. And, and this example of that is what happened on Jan- January the 6th, right? You know, with people going in, you know, taking back supposedly their government or whatever they want to do with that. The insurrections means that white folk are willing to go to that extent to, you know, to destroy our democracy in order to keep democracy being shared by everyone. And so that's a, that's a very interesting you know, concept. And I recommend that book to you. Yes. We actually took a trip to my hometown. I'm from the East coast of, of North Carolina. And we spoke to a gentleman who was at the forefront. He had his sister and his family actually of the civil rights movement a local artist, we also spoke with him, and they recall having a pool downtown in that little town. And right. rather than integrate, they concrete it, use concrete to close the pool up. And so what it does is that it physically shuts down the opportunity, but it also closes the window of opportunity for people to grow and to engage. So that analogy is is really something that many of us can relate to because it's actual history that occurred and right. it, it, it helps us to, to understand, uh, just as you mentioned with the, the, uh, the insurrection, the extent to which people will go through, go to, to uh, suppress and deny humanity to others. So thank you for recommending that book and thank you for sharing what you just shared. Sure. Uh, I'm going to go down a little bit different direction, Reverend, Reverend Bass, and it's actually piggybacking off of what you and Anita were just talking about, about how when 45 was elected, the, uh, of course, it, we all can agree, I think, that racism, yes, has existed at least from 1619, <laughs> if not before, right. as far as the United States goes. But my point here is this. It may seem like a million years ago, 
for some of us. But in 2008, the first African-American was elected as president of the United States. And I have a vivid memory of him, he and his family, Michelle and the two girls, being in Chicago at Grant Park, and he's doing the acceptance speech. Sure. And and clearly in the audience, there were African-Americans, but there were white people and there were uh, Hispanics and there were some Asians. There were young people and there were older people. Now, I'm, I'm right. setting up the question with, with that to sure. say some folks would say that's really when the covert racism started rearing his ugly head. They think of when uh, President Obama was giving a speech, uh, one of the State of the Union speeches, mm -hmm. and a representative from South Carolina yelled out in the middle of his speech, you lie. Now, wh whatever issues folks may have had with George W. Bush or Jimmy Carter or Reagan or any of the other presidents, Bill Clinton, no one had ever showed that type of disrespect in the Congress, openly right. and blatantly. Then, of course, you had, at the time, minority leader uh, Mitch McConnell, a Republican from the Senate, basically saying in public, not covertly, but overtly, my main goal is to make sure Obama is a one-term president. Right. And, and, of course, now that's manifesting with, no, we're not going to uh, support anything that President Biden or the Democrats are putting forth. So I'm saying right. that to say this. Some would say that the covert became overt when President Obama was elected. And even though it was a a diversity of the population that made him president, because mm -hmm. if every African-American voted for President Obama, he wouldn't have been president. It took Asians and some white folks, and some right. Native Americans. So when that happened, the covert Mitch McConnell's and Joe Wilson's from South Carolina they came out in the open and that for some folks, some folks would say that's when it first set the stage for 45 to come out saying the crazy things that he said, doing the crazy things that he did and still got elected. Nonetheless, what, what are your thoughts about that? I'm thinking in terms of policies. I think, I think the, the thing that's really open for me was the fact that I've learned more about politics since you know, President Obama became president, then I've learned, you know, I don't know, in, in my lifetime, I guess. And, and I, as a college student, I actually helped work the polls, you know, in, in undergrad school. So mm -hmm. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, I, I did have that in my psyche. But what I don't know or didn't know is how politics works. And I think what we're seeing is just how politics works. And, and I don't think that it was a fact that it started there, but I just think that it became public. And I agree with that. No president has ever been spoken to that way. No president has ever been treated that way, but no president has ever been black either. <laughs> and the history of black people has been mistreatment. You know, right. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying? Right. We have, we, all of our history has been this idea of how, well, how many different ways can we, you know, mistreat or you know, treat unjustly a black man or a black woman, you know? And so to me, this was really just the, the height at which now, that the racism, if you will, systemic racism, you know, was now public and you could see just how uh, nasty, it, you know, it could be, you know. And, and so I think it's more that kind of thing than the fact that, you know, that it, it, it kind of like, you know, uh, you know, was at this new level. Again, certain certain events, certain actions bring out 
you know, reactions to racial matters, I guess you could say, especially when it deals with African-Americans and black folk. And, and, that, and that was one. And so that's what I'm saying. We, we see we as black people, uh, African-Americans, people of color, we're just learning the system. We're just learning how to navigate. But the system has always been there. My words, the system has always functioned the way it has. But we've been able to navigate in ways that we have you know, experienced a lot of negativity, right? Or we haven't experienced a lot of these, you know, outlashes. You know, my father taught me, at least my, my, my family said, you know, be careful how you talk, you know, in public. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you don't want to get killed, right? I mean, that was the bottom line, right? And so I've always been taught to suppress my anger. You know, so I, I have a lot of problems with trying to express myself when I'm angry. And anger is a gift from God. I learned that later on, too, because it, it's a response to injustice. It's a response mm-hmm. to wrong. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, you know, again, we, we, the way we're socializing condition in our society, you know, has kept us you know down or something. And I, people are coming out. All this, you know, people are changing. But but we just didn't know politics the way it is. And we're just beginning to see just how it really plays, how dirty it is. Mm-hmm. And and how the majority makes a difference, you know, the Republicans are the majority. I mean, even some of the things that the Republicans are doing, I've heard the Democrats did it, you know, for their own reason, you know. Right. Supposedly <laughs> right. they did it for a better, you know, society, better, you know, better democracy. But mm-hmm. uh, so they all play the same game in some way, and that's what we have to learn. We got to figure out how to how to you know use our vote. I mean, it's so important that we learn how to use our vote. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Let me just touch on this real quickly before I turn the mic back over to Anita. So Dignity Justified, right? Our organization, part of our mission involves honoring the dignity of others and deepening our understanding of self, of family, of community and country. That's part of what Dignity Justified does. And we yeah. have we happen to do it through art and artifacts and uh, articles and, and history conversations. and conversations <laughs> like this one. But but I say that to say this, we, we link very closely with what Freedom Tree at IDR is doing, but in a measurable way. Right. There's approximately three hundred and fifty thousand residents here in the, the triad or the or the county of Forsyth, Forsyth County. So in terms of what Freedom Tree and IDR can do, whether it's the uh, addressing the food desert issue or whether it's, uh, you know, actually training people with the transformational process. Mm -hmm. What sort of partnerships and collaborative relationships has Freedom Tree and IDR established in the community in terms of who you're targeting and what does success look like when it comes to such a broad topic as systemic racism? Well, uh, on 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 the uh, advocacy side of things, uh, back in two thousand and um, I want to say eighteen or nineteen, we had an opportunity to partner with a local business, which is a yoga studio. And at the time, this was right after forty five became president. They uh, wanted to be more inclusive and more inviting and, and more supportive and wanted to do what they call social justice action. In other words, not just talk, but they want to do some action. Mm-hmm. And I was referred to them. And so uh, I had no idea you know, about yoga other than the fact that I knew my wife did yoga and I did a little bit of it. But uh, just the fact that this yoga studio wanted to become a healing center and, and had as its basis justice, the idea of doing justice. And so that's one thing that we've done. We've established a relationship with this with this business that now has at its core the idea of doing justice. And, and two, and they have two programs that they do. One called 
anti-racist uh, learning circles, which is which is where people who have experienced diversity, inclusivity, and uh, and anti-racism work or dismantling racism work come together once a month and really hone, if you will, their skills around talking about race and race and rhythm and and finding you know ways to do more, you know, to be more active. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is what they call wisdom circles for white folk, which is this idea of white people teaching white people. You know, there is at a point where we can only do but so much, but white people who are awoke, if you will, can do more. And so this organization, this this yoga studio that's become a healing center now has that program as well. And so it's white people getting together. And this is a year-long program they just started this year to read, you know, to reflect, to get together, to do things, to get involved, to get out of their, you know, comfort zone, if you will, and, and to, you know, really uh, figure out ways that they can be transformed. So that's two things. The other thing is that for the broader community, there was this willingness to do some advocacy things. And so we established what we call the Justice Collective, which is a group of uh, broad-based uh, organizing groups. We provide a container where people come together once a month and they share the activity, the work that they're doing. It's not to, you know, to, to tell anybody how to do their work. You have people working on voter rights. You have people working on discrimination. You have people working on these different these different things, and and so we establish the Justice Collective, and we provide you know an avenue to even to get education and training. We've done a lot around the voting thing, and you know now the uh, suppressing the vote, um, gerrymandering, you know all these different kinds of things where uh, anti-government uh, actions taking place. Uh, we are learning about that through the Justice Collective, and then you know, uh, setting up actions that we can do. In, in order to stop it, you know, in order to uh, change the direction of our of our governments, and then of course, you know, with the share of uh, cooperative and the harvest market, is a more tangible way, if you will, where food is being provided through reasonably cost, low cost, nutritional, if you will, and accessible food, and a location where people can get together and really be together without any type of, you know, motives, you know. So immediately, those are the kinds of things. And of course, you know, working with the city and the county and uh, the minister's conference, you know, there's various things that go on uh, around uh, dealing, with, dealing with, you know, injustices in our community. So, Well, thank you so much for, for those very clear and specific things that are going on to help us understand how you are involved and how your organization has been involved in activities throughout the city. And, and what's so important about that is that it helps our listeners to understand if there's something that they would like to do, they now have a, a way to think about yoga or thinking about right. a food deserts or whatever. And it helps people to move from a superficial notion of saying I understand to being involved in eradicating the destruction that racism causes. And it helps us right. to all think about our common humanity because it's something that has impacted us all and it gives us avenues of support. So thank you. Thank you so much for those clear examples. I know sure. I know that you mentioned your niece and her work with the 1619 uh, Project. So what we're going to do now is just give you an opportunity to share any further information, whether you want to talk about that, whether you want to talk about the Freedom Tree or any initiatives or events that you'd like to share. We know that we've used more than 35 minutes of your time. So we want to extend that opportunity to you, Reverend Bass. Well, good. I appreciate that. So I'm going to talk on both of those things uh, because uh, she's been in the news over the last uh, 24 to 48 hours. Uh, Nicole was uh, offered a position at UNC Chapel Hill, 
and it was supposed to be in a tenure position and then they switched it and then they turned, uh, you know, uh, back and they finally voted, you know, to actually give her tenure. Mm-hmm. And she was wise enough, if you will, in her own being that she decided that she would not take the position because, uh, number one, it wasn't handled right. But number two, she's still going to have to go into a predominantly white institution and still have to prove herself, you know, to be on equal footing, even though she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. You know, and she's got all these awards and accolades, you know, that go along with her. So um, so I just you know, would recommend that people Google her, you know what I mean, and, and follow her and keep up with her. She's going to be doing some awesome things over in at Howard, along with uh, Tanisi Ta- 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 Coates. They're now there, the two powerhouses, if you will, that deal with race and racism and uh, injustice in America. So I, I would I put that out there. The other thing that I want to share, though, is as, uh, again, the more contemporary work that Freedom Tree is doing is this idea of building a community through establishing a business model. And the share cooperative is the business model that we're establishing in the community. Uh, and it's a business model, again, that that, that I said that also comes with a membership, ownership, you know, means through a cooperative model. Uh, we want people to come in and join and you can become a, a member of the, of the you know, operating body, if you will, the, the, the management team, you know, by getting voted in by the members. Uh, we have a board. For the harvest market, which is the store part, and then we have a steering committee for the share cooperative. So we actually have two entities working together. One is a nonprofit that actually is able to get funding for our program work, and then the store itself or the market itself is a business. Uh, it's designed to you know draw, to to you know uh, develop revenue. You know, it's a business. We're going to hire twenty five employees initially, uh, and uh, probably grow from there. And we're going to hopefully be uh, uh, paying livable wages. Mm-hmm. We want to model what it means to be, you know, totally democratic and, and you know, totally liberated and free. You know, if you were in a society that has so many barriers, you know, that, that exists around us. And we're located in a part of the community that's uh, diverse, if you will, which helps us a lot. Now, diverse means all the way from homelessness up into, you know, people who are, could be considered somewhat affluent. And we are... We're in a, in a place where we can provide training, meeting space, and also business you know, training as well. We're going to do nutritional classes. We're going to do member meetings. We're going to do uh, public kinds of meetings and gatherings. And so there's a lot going on here, and we want to invite folks to come by. And you want to check out our website, www.share-ws.coop. And that's the, uh, that's the program part of it. The other part of it is www.harvestmarket.store. We actually have an online platform now where we're selling food while we're building out the store. Hopefully the store will be open by the end of this year. But meanwhile, you can go to the Harvest Mini Market and buy fresh produce that uh, come from local farmers. We have relationships with local farmers. We're very intentional about our relationships. We're trying to make sure that we are selling local produce and local, Mm -hmm. local goods. Um, the idea is that and if there's folks who are in need and come in and they can't afford to buy the food, then we will help them get the food. Instead of giving dividends at the end of the year, what we do is we put the, the revenues that we get, the, the profits, and put it in a foundation. And we use that in, in order to help people with their needs. So we think it's a good model. Uh, we're still building it out. Uh, we have 430 plus members and growing. And we'd love for you all to join as well and continue to put the word out. Uh, we believe that this is a model for change. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here with you. And uh, the Freedom Tree course on IDR website www.idrusnow.org. You can connect with us there. 
Well, thank you so much for giving us that information and, and on a personal level for you and your family. We support Nicole. Many people have heard quite a bit about her and can relate to opportunities where people are talented, gifted, qualified, and we have expectations in place. However, um, many times someone decides that they don't have to act upon our dreams and implement the things that we deserve. And when one door closes, many others open it, as in the case with what what uh, she will be experiencing with her new move to Howard. So we certainly wish her the best, but we'll definitely sure. continue to follow that. Yes. And Reverend Bass, it's been a real joy. It's been informative. It's been enlightening. It's been inspiring. Always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And I'm sure that our listening audience as well uh, benefited from our time together today. And if you wouldn't mind sharing those uh, websites uh, one more time for those who may have not had their pen or uh, weren't quite listening, uh, if you could share the websites again. Sure. Uh, Freedom Tree at IDR is www.idrusnow.org. Uh, the Share Cooperative at Winston-Salem is www.share-ws.coop. And the Harvest Market, the mini market that's open now where you can buy food is www.harvestmarket.store. Fantastic. Please, please connect with those websites and uh, come see us. We'd love to have you. Excellent. Reverend Willard Bass of Freedom Tree at the Institute for Dismantling Racism here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thank you again for your time. And thank you out there in the listening audience for tuning in to Dignity Justified. We do appreciate your support. Stay tuned for our next podcast and you and your loved ones stay safe. This podcast is sponsored by the Enterprise Conference and Event Center, a part of the S.G. Atkins Community Development Corporation. The Enterprise Center, where Carol Davis serves as Executive Director, is a business incubator, event center, and community education building located at 1922 South Martin Luther King Jr. Drive in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. No matter your community, civic, or corporate needs, the Enterprise Center's state-of-the-arts conference and banquet facility offers flexible size and capacity for hosting and accommodating your next function. Please visit their website at the Enterprise Conference and Event Center. Learn more about Dignity Justified at www.dignityjustified.com.